TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is how I feel about the creative process. That if you listen to your inner vision, you listen to your own voice, you make art from that place. Sooner or later, the um, zeitgeist hits you. Or not. Some people have to die first. But the zeitgeist sooner or later will catch up with them. It's fair in the end, perhaps, but there's so many great artists who died, nobody even knew who they were. And I I feel like I'm one of the lucky ones. It hit me when I was alive. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. On this episode, Debbie talks with artist Marilyn Mentor about the ups and downs of her career and about the use of sexual imagery in her work. It seemed really natural for me, for women to start making images for their own pleasure and amusement. Because I like porn, it turned me on. This interview was conducted remotely on Wednesday, April 1st, 2020, when both Marilyn Mentor and Debbie were socially isolating in their respective houses. Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor, then her interview with Marilyn Mentor. It can be rough to find really great modern furniture and decor that's affordable, feels as good as it looks, and just generally makes you happy. I recently came across Industry West, which is all about making it easy to discover and buy bold design that can keep up with modern life. From dining and lounge chairs to sofas and end tables, Industry West offers high-quality products and goes to great lengths to ensure customer happiness. They also work as easily with the trade, providing industry-best warranty and lead times. So if you're interested in surrounding yourself with killer design, visit Industry West. Design Matters listeners can now get 20% off. Just visit industrywest.com and enter promo code DESIGNMATTERS at checkout. Marilyn Minter straddles the line between commercial and fine art as well as anybody since Andy Warhol. Her photorealistic images are simultaneously beautiful, erotic, and disturbing, and they are striking in glossy magazines or on museum walls. At the center of her work is the body, specifically the female body, and we look at her glamorous photographs and paintings of eyes and lips, tongues and toes, with recognition and unease. 
Recently, Minter has been bringing her skills into the political arena, and we'll talk about that, her long career, and more in today's interview. Marilyn Minter, welcome to Design Matters. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for that beautiful introduction. Oh, thank you. Um, Marilyn, you were born in Shreveport, Louisiana, but you grew up in 1960s Florida. 50s, 60s, because I oh. left Louisiana at around five. Oh, okay. Well, you've described that time in Florida as the land of no parents. What did you mean by that? Well, a lot of people went to Florida f- to escape, I think. It was like a brand new world for a lot of people, especially South Florida. And everyone came from someplace else. It was a real party scene. And... uh I had a drug addict mother and an alcoholic father. He was also a compulsive gambler. So I think we moved to Miami because he could go to uh, Havana and uh, gamble. And they went every weekend pretty much. They never had a job again. He He started a golf course and he was a scratch golfer. He played every day, right? Didn't he play every day? Every day, 36 holes. 18 holes, yeah. <clears throat> and then they went to the club afterwards. And I basically, you know, as a little girl, sat at the bar and uh, ate olives and uh, orange peels and and maritino cherries and t- waiting for them and watching TV. Your parents split up when you were about eight years old and your dad left your mother for a friend of hers. Same thing happened to me at about the same time in my life as I was growing up. Yeah. My father left my yeah. mother for uh, my mom's best friend who lived down the block. Oh, wow. That's so uh, you. Yeah, the trauma is pretty extreme. It is really extreme. All the parents, all the family, um, you know, members are split, but also the uh all the friends right. take sides. Right. And my mother was ostracized. I was ostracized more than my mother because somehow or another, I had two friends that thought that I was the reason that my parents got divorced because we were all oh, in the same God. neighborhood. So yeah, it was oh, really quite awful. Traumatic. Yeah, yeah. it's traumatic. Well, my mother went into a tailspin. I know. And I pretty much raised myself from that, from that moment on. It sounds like you were raising yourself even before that. Well, I was, but uh, I didn't, I still had the, uh, no, there was no illusion. If you went into my house, you knew there was something wrong with this picture immediately, even as a little girl. My mother was, my cousin told me that they were worried when she got pregnant with me because, you know, she walked into walls. You taught yourself how to drive at 12 because you were hungry? (laughs) God, you really are good at this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, no, I taught myself how to, I just started driving because I wanted to go visit a friend. Oh. But in, in South Florida, when my mother first got in, you know, came out of the hospital, no one took care of me. And I was dirty and hungry. But by the time we moved to Fort Lauderdale, there was a restaurant in the, in the complex that I lived in. So I could always go down there and eat, just sign, sign uh, uh, her name or my name. I don't remember how I did it, but uh, I just decided at 12 I was going to visit a friend. And, you know, my father sort of tried to teach me to drive a little bit. You know, it was like I drove around a parking lot once. So once I learned how to do that, I just said, I want to go visit my friend Vicky. And I drove across one of the uh, expressways and uh, went over to her house. She lived real close by. And it was really funny. And I drove from then on. And you never got stopped, <laughs> pulled over into an accident? I got stopped. 
I got my license taken away three times before I was 21. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for what? <laughs> but this is Florida. This is Florida speeding. And um, truthfully, in Florida, you could pull the ticket. I mean, I paid this guy who was a friend of my dad's. All the money I made that summer to pull my ticket was $800. Uh, my summer salary from working, selling encyclopedias door to door. And uh, he pulled the ticket. I got away with it because I got stopped. At, you know, I speeded a lot at, because um, I had a heavy foot. And plus, I was getting high all the time. So I really didn't pay a lot of attention to my, uh, I, you know, I was, I was raised by wolves and I sort of behaved like I could do anything. I was invincible. Which was crazy. Well, I understand that by the time you got to high school, you were what you've described as a really bad girl. You got into trouble for confronting your teachers for their racism. And I read that you insisted on using a colored drinking fountain when you were confronted by different fountains for black people and white people. When I was really, yeah, yeah. Well, I was appalled. I don't even, but I sort of, you know, I fantasized because I couldn't bear the idea. I just got this. At birth, we were we we were raised by really racists, anti-Semitic, anti-Arab, anti-everything, uh, you know, Southern uh, genteel people who were the disgrace to their families. So, um, you know, they didn't use the N word, but they said "negra," you know, and and they had their genteel. But it was this. I was appalled by. And I would talk to my nanny or my or my mother's maid about Colored Town, and I would draw pictures of it as if it was this fantasy area. I wanted it to be, and I saw colored drinking fountains and uh, white drinking fountains, and you know I, I'm old enough to see that in Louisiana, and it just it it was felt so wrong to me, and um, nobody really could explain or justify racism. So it was this left unsaid thing until I started paying attention in high school to Martin Luther King, and I was just appalled. I got sent to the dean of students' office once a week, and I skipped school all the time and went to the beach. And, you know, I was generally one of the... I was one of the... There were the bad kids that were poor, and then there were the middle-class bad kids, and I was sort of the leader of the middle-class bad kids. (laughs) Given your upbringing, where did your moral compass come from? Well, it's interesting, because my brothers and I wonder why we were such, you know, liberals in this really, uh, you know, backward environment. And I don't know. I really don't know. I've always been extremely crazed when there's injustice. And I was called names growing up all the time and I was a bad kid I mean I was a bad kid because I had a drug addict mother but I was the worst kind of kid you could have um, if you were a drug addict because I was uncontrollable I would stay out all night and make her frantic I got put in jail at 16 what were you put in jail for well you know I could draw so I would uh, alter people's driver's licenses <laughs> for five dollars. They'd send me a driver's license in the mail, and I would and I could draw before there was lamination. This was in the sixties, and I could draw the numbers. And everyone else was trying to change their driver's licenses, and uh, they would type it in, and it looked phony. But I knew how to draw the numbers. I took a, a, a mat knife and I scraped off the paper, and I, with a pencil, I drew in a three instead of an eight. Things like that. And I mean, it, when I talk about the land and no parents, my group of friends, their parents were the exact same thing. 
I would like, we'd be driving down the street and I'd see one of my father's friends making out with some woman in a Volkswagen. And we go, hello, Mr. Owens. <laughs> we were terrible little kids. You, you started drawing at five years old. And by the time you were nine years old, you taught yourself how to draw the comic character Brenda Starr, the glamorous yes. and adventurous news reporter. Yeah. I also loved her. Um, when we were originally going to be, and, and a daughter named Twinkle, uh, no, yeah. Star Twinkle. Um, but when we um, when we were first supposed to meet in person, um, I had some vintage Bar- Brenda Star ephemera I wanted to give you, so I owe that to you um, now because oh, of the, the epidemic we are living through, the pandemic we're living through, it's hard to be meeting in person. It's impossible to be meeting in person, but I, yeah. I do owe you some really good Brenda to star ephemera. So you 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 got the so did your mother fall apart when your parents split up? Um I think that she sort of fell apart much earlier. Um mm-hmm. she's very fragile mm-hmm. and she's still alive and we have a, a really complicated relationship as you can well imagine. And most of did my she life ever remarry? Oh yes. She's been married four times and okay. sort of one worse than the other, sort of. Right, right. Um, for different reasons. So you knew, you knew somewhere too that you had to make your own way in the world. Oh yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew up. Uh, I was. I'm a native New Yorker. I was born in Brooklyn. Yeah. Then we moved to Queens. Then Staten Island. Then my parents got divorced. My mom took my brother and I to Long Island, where she then proceeded to marry a real criminal. My dad was a criminal too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was really abusive to all of us, to the entire family. Mm-hmm. Um, he mm-hmm. had two daughters. He was also abusive to them. Um, and then four years later, she got divorced again. And then I was allowed to see my dad again. But that was also super complicated, super complicated relationship with, with him as well. He died five years ago. Well, you were attracted to Brenda Starr for the same reason I was. Yeah. She made her way in the world. Yep. Self-sufficient. She didn't count on. Yeah. I saw instantly this is, this is, you you know, because we were indoctrinated with this kind of Southern, you have to be sweet as pie, you know, and uh, butter wouldn't melt in your mouth, you know, and I just, that's not me. (laughs) Well, I also have family that grew up in Florida. My mother's brother grew up in Florida. And at one point, uh, I was going to try to defect (laughs) into that family because mine was so horrible. My my cousin was getting bar mitzvahed and he was 13 and I was 12 and we were all supposed to go to the bar mitzvah. And then my grandfather died and we ended up not going. My mom went on her own and I wasn't allowed to go. But had I gone to that bar mitzvah, I was going to try to uh, never leave. Wow. See, I wanted my, I just watched my friends and their parents and it was like a marvel that that's how other people were. Yeah. Yeah. People whose parents actually loved them. I know. But I also had friends whose parents were worse than mine. I did so. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, that you're probably yeah. the first person I've met who I could genuinely say you had a way worse childhood than I did. Oh, you know, those of us who were raised like this, we're tough as nails, though. Yeah, we can handle everything. Do you still love Brenda Starr? Oh, you know, I, I, of course. You know, except I look back on, you know, she did have that mystery man with the patch. Ah, Basil St. Like, John. She, he was yeah, so unworthy yeah, oh, of her. Yeah, really. Uh, <laughs> so I was, that was the big disappointment. Right? <laughs> the orchid. Yeah, the uh, orchid. 
<laughs> As if. Would have been great uh-huh. if she were a lesbian, right? Oh, true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Marilyn, you began to earn money in high school for drawing reproductions of Vargas pinup girls for your brother's friend. Yeah, um, I got $100 for drawing Vargas pinups, yeah, and, and pencil. Have you ever seen any of the sketches come up at auction? I was trying to find some. Oh, no, I haven't, no. It's, it's probably impossible because, um, you know, I was not somebody who anyone would think of would ever be successful. So those people would never have kept them. That's what I figure. Did you have a sense then that you could be successful? Well, I I knew I had a vision, but and I knew I was smarter than other people. But um, I had a I had you know when I was born on drugs. My mother never breastfed. I really had uh, a, a real math. It's, it, there's dyslexia for math for people who with numbers. There's a name for it. I can't remember it off the top of my head. I was basically really way with backward when it came to numbers. I still don't know arithmetic to these day to this day, but it drove me crazy because I knew I was smarter than people that were just sailing through basic uh, geometry, and uh, so it was like uh, the world didn't see it. I had a totally unmeasured uh, intelligence. And uh, once in a while, a teacher would say something, oh, you're really good. I was really good in English and literature and history, but I could memorize anything because that was my way to survive. But I always knew I had something to say, but, you know, I didn't have any encouragement whatsoever. But I just did it anyway because I had a good time doing it. I had pleasure making art. It just gave me too much pleasure whether anyone was going to look at it or not. You attended the University of Florida, Gainesville, and received a Bachelor of Arts degree in 1970. And it was there that you first created a black and white series of dark photographs you'd taken of your mother smoking and grooming herself at home in her nightgown. What made you choose photography at that point? Well, the school, University of Florida was, you know, this was in the 60s, and they were, there was a moment when art movements were, Long, well, I mean, there were art movies that were hundreds of years long. And, and by the time of the 50s and 60s, art movements maybe were getting down to 10 years, abstract expressionism. There was a real vision that there was only one practice if you were a real artist. And there's always been this bifurcation of art, like Rococo as opposed to neoclassicism. It's probably the same in literature and, and any kind of uh, creative field where there's, you know, excess as opposed to minimalism. And when the culture, when the whole culture is invested in abex as being the only true way to make art, that's how the art teachers taught us in in, the University of Florida. Like we had no model to work from. Mine had to draw, but I didn't know anything about painting. And uh, so our our teacher just threw us in with, with canvases that we bought at the bookstore and said, start painting. No still life. No model, no nothing. No, not not learn. I learned nothing about what orange does next to blue, or how to paint on top of dried paint, or what colors did. So I got, and I was I couldn't work without a source. And but I read art magazines, and I knew about Warhol. So I started looking up, um, you know, working from images from popular culture. And uh, but I got a C in paint. But I, <laughs> and now in photography, I got an A. I read that, and I just. 
could not help but laugh out loud. It's like, really? See? I wonder what that oh, yeah. professor thinks now. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if you were working for popular culture, you were, um, you know, low low culture was uh, was not, there's no, no, no combination whatsoever in those days. It was a real uh, a line between high and low culture, and you didn't cross that. Warhol crossed it. And I was sort of following what I read in art magazines. But I was in a school where they said, there are no w- good women artists. I don't know what I thought I was. You know, it was if it wasn't for art magazines and reading about all these women artists in the magazines, I didn't study from one woman teacher. I didn't study. I only studied two female artists the whole time I was in school. Who were they? Beverly Pepper and Mary Cassatt. Because one art teacher decided to throw in a couple of women. Wow. Generous. Uh-huh. Uh, upon visiting your school, uh, the legendary photographer Diane Arbus uh, visited and hated everything she saw by the other students, which consisted <laughs> of very romantic, romantic yeah, pictures very romantic, of seashells yeah. in the sky yeah. and so forth. And one of your teachers ended up showing Arbus a contact sheet of your photos of your mother, and she loved them. What was that like for you at the time? Well, when I brought my, you know, I went home, I was in, my school was in a very conservative Gainesville, Florida, in the panhandle, up way upstate. And it was a very conservative, uh, everyone from, South Florida was really different than Northern Florida, and it still is. So I brought those proof sheets to class, and that was when I first saw, you know, how the reaction to those photos, and everybody was going, oh my God, that's your mother? And I was just, waves of shame came over me. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to show these anymore. And I didn't really not, the teacher didn't think they were terrible, but it was just the other, your your uh, peers were just sort of shocked by them, didn't know what to say. This was before Oprah, remember? This is when nobody talked about anything in the deep south. and up for, So I was like opening a wound, you know, and nobody wants to talk about stuff like that in, in the south. I, you know, I just put them away. I didn't really print them until 1995. But I was just walking by a classroom and Diane was teaching the grad students, not us lowly undergrads. And he said, Marilyn, go get your proof sheet and show Diane this work. And I didn't know who she was because um, there was a real, you know, uh, grad students and, and uh, juniors didn't really mix, juniors in college. So... When in 1971, when I was in grad school, she died, and that's when I found out who she was. It was a, she was in Life magazine as someone who was an important artist. So I really didn't know. You hid the photos for 25 years in a drawer. Yeah. What made you decide to bring them back out? Well, I was asked by a friend of mine uh, at the drawing center. They did these readings from different uh, poets and writers, and she wanted um, installations. Uh, and I thought, well, the, this is such a serendipity because the drawings, uh, the drawing center was a, 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 an institution that only showed drawings. And they were all on framed drawings on the wall or drawn on the wall, period. So I thought I could do an installation by not messing at all with um, the wall itself. I just print, I'd print these big photographs because it's all I had. And I thought I had these black and white photos. I used photography all the time to make my paintings. But um, I didn't have any, 
what I would call art photography. So uh, I I made these giant photos, not even in a lab. I made them in a uh, a blueprint place, and I, I just pinned them to the wall. I mean, really big ones of my mother, and the response was amazing, and uh, it was very overwhelming. And I just um, it's almost all of a sudden people started taking me very seriously in '95. Yes, after you graduated from Gainesville, you then went to get an MFA from Syracuse University. And you and your then husband drove to Syracuse from Florida in a 1950s Jaguar. You were stored in a garage and you almost died from the exhaust. (laughs) The muffler. I think the muffler brain damaged my cat, as a matter of fact. Oh, no. Yeah, Yeah, we had these terrible headaches. We did such a terrible job. Yeah, but we looked like, you know, southern hippies, really, driving up up north. And uh, it was the first time I'd ever been up north. First time I'd ever seen snow. I talk like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were in school. I understand that you called the factory to learn how to make silk screens, and they yeah. told you. They told me how, yeah. <laughs> I, I was always ambitious. I was always ambitious. Remember Evergreen? You, you're probably too young to know Evergreen Review. But it was this really radical magazine in the 60s and 70s, and it was on the back pages of Evergreen, the number of the factory. Incredible. Yet you've said that at that point in your life, you had no confidence. No, none. But you were ambitious. And yeah. I think that's such an interesting um, combination of attributes. You were no confidence, but ambitious. So would mm-hmm. you say that your ambition, you had a tiny bit more ambition than lack of confidence in your ability to even have the courage to call the factory? You know, I, I didn't have any problem at all asking for help. And uh, so, like, I, I actually, I learned really fast how to work in the, because uh, in the Florida, we just bought these already made stretcher bars and stretch canvases. And I, I was in an art school. I was the only female. There were 17 guys. And most of them knew how to work in the wood shop. And I really didn't. And I think that put me at a real disadvantage. Um, and so I learned right away how to use uh, the equipment. And that sort of got me a little respect. And then I won this award from the Everson Museum. For my very first semester there, I won the painting award where they bought the piece. And so that sort of made the faculty pay attention to me. So much for that C in painting. <laughs> I had to, yeah, I had to build, I had to build my resume, so to speak. But I'm, you know, I was willing, you know, I, it was a moment in, it was really that moment in feminism where I just was decided that there was no difference, even though I know now there is a real difference between males and females. Um, but like, we don't have upper body strength, things like that. I learned really the hard way. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I was just determined to be able to do anything a guy could do. You began collaborating with German expressionist painter Christoph Kohlhofer upon moving to New York in uh, 1976. It was at that time that you began making the hardcore porn that resulted in your getting beaten up by art critics. So you started beating up the paintings with a belt sander, which led you to the work that you did next. Why was your work perceived as so threatening at that time? Well, I understand, you know, I really thought everyone thought like me. Uh, this was after the, uh, I did a collaboration in the East Village, and then I basically cleaned up my act in 1985. I stopped working with a colla- German collaborator, and I went off on my own. And, it, you know, I was always, you know, I wasn't 
just recently an activist. I've always been one. You, you know, I just had no, there was just no documentation like we have now. But my husband and I were both at 1971, we were both in Washington, protested the Vietnam War. We had all these, you know, we didn't know each other. We never met. We were from different schools. And I've always been, and uh, you know, first it was civil rights, then it was anti-Vietnam, and then I got really into the feminist movement, and I paid attention. I went to now meetings, you know, so I was always an activist. So I always, so I saw this evolve, evolve. I saw myself evolve. I saw my, I watched, I read Playboy magazine. It was a real radical magazine in, in, for me in the Deep South, and they had these great interviews, and it was, you know, and, and the pinups were not really, you know, that explicit and it was uh you know they were pro uh, uh reproduction rights they were anti uh vietnam they were they were pro civil rights they were you know really liberal in every in, in every way they could be except for feminism just ripped their hearts out and they went to the opposite and I, I so i turned off playboy and I really got into Ms. Magazine. I'm just saying my own trajectory. But it, then it occurred to me that um, it seemed really natural for me, or to, for women to start making images for their own pleasure and amusement. Because I like porn. It turned me on. And I thought that, uh, that, 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 that feminists should own, you know, uh, sexual reproduction. Now that, and I started making those images. And there's a long story why. I I was, and I'll make it as quick as I can, but... Oh, you don't have to do it quickly. It's fine. Well, I, you know, in the 90s, I, no, no, I guess it was in the late 80s, I saw this. Well, I was always, uh, you know, I was always concerned why male artists got so much more attention than female artists. It was always in the back of my mind why, you know, this doesn't seem fair. Like, I pay a lot of attention to art history. I'm like, I love art history. And so I knew the work of Joan Mitchell, Joni Mitchell. And I thought, damn, she just kicks ass. She's so good. Why isn't she getting the same amount of attention as somebody like uh, de Kooning, you know? Um, I know Pollock changed art history in a big, big way, but why wasn't she just as, as important? She made just as radical a move and these kinds of things and I saw Helen Frankenthaler change art history in such a big way why wasn't she getting the attention that Morris Lewis was getting or or Kenneth Noland and so uh, with that background I went to see this really great show of Mike Kelly at Metro Pictures and uh, Mike Kelly mm. yeah and a great artist and he had been he, and the paintings were Paintings of uh, there was they were soda onto canvas stuffed animals and stuffed animal sculptures and dolls. There were dolls and 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 uh, and they, he did tables filled with candle wax and he made banners out of felt and he did decoupage decoupage um, chest of drawers of lips and mouths and it was really like mining a thirteen year old girl's brain or an adolescent child uh that this mall culture you know and glitters and rainbows and i thought wow this is this intellectual man if a woman artist had made any of this work she would get no attention whatsoever oh she would have been ostracized i don't know ostracized are considered essentialist or you know and i thought this is so brilliant you know he's making a picture we all know is a thing that exists you know you know, people were enraptured by it. So I thought, well, what is the, 
one subject matter that women have never touched. Because, you know, if a woman made this, she'd be totally dismissed. But if a man made it, it changed the meaning. So I was asking questions. I said, well, what happens if a woman takes sexual imagery and owns it and makes reproductions from it? And then that's how I got into working for porn. And I knew, I only knew about two other artists, Judy Bernstein and Carolee Steeman, who I really admired, that had worked with porn. And they, I thought of them as working with softcore porn. So I thought, well, it'll only work if I do cum shots, really hardcore things. At that point, cum shots were kind of hardcore. And, uh, and this was uh, in the late 80s. So I made this one series called uh, the, the Porn Grid. And I really thought everyone was thinking just like I did. Uh, and what I was doing was repurposing imagery from an abusive history. There was that whole feminist movement that really believed that all porn was evil and bad and exploitive. And, and of course, I, you know, it's very hard to argue against that. But I was trying to make the case that nobody has politically correct fantasies and that uh, it's time for women to make images from the, for their own amusement and their own pleasure. They should own the production of sexual imagery. And it frightened the hell out of everybody. And it still does, by the way. Yeah. I was asking these questions. And since I didn't have any answers, which I still don't, by the way, uh, that was my downfall because it was so easy to categorize me as a traitor to feminism and an anti-feminist. And I basically kicked out of the art world. You know, shows closed. My clothes, my show closed a week early. Uh, I couldn't sell anything. Um, I was got excoriating reviews in the Times and the Village Voice and... I was pretty devastated because I thought everyone thought like I wasn't ever trying to be tantalating or, but I somehow knew I was on the right path. And basically um, the internet exploded and uh, my side won. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think people were really upset about? I think they're really upset about the fact that women tried to own this power because women have always known they have this power over men. Uh, kind of a power, sexual power, you know. And men are frightened by it, I think, and other women are frightened by it. And I don't think we've even had anybody talking about how, uh, very rarely do you write, does anyone write about how women owning the production of it is, is so scary to everyone. And it still is. I mean, especially, if you, but I'm an old lady, so I can get away with it. But when I was youngish, you know, I was in my early 40s, you know, young girls still, if they work with any sexual imagery, get terrible slut shaming in the art world today. So you think that it's more acceptable that you do it now because of your age? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's this picture, I, I always use this as a, an example. There's this very famous Robert Maplethorpe photograph of Louise Bourgeois holding this giant dildo. And she's grinning. And everyone thinks she's adorable. <laughs> but if a young artist, if a young, beautiful artist had that, you know, you just can see that people, both men and women, get so terrified of that. And that's like one of the big questions for me is why anyone, why is it so, like, it's okay if I, I can do anything now, you know, in terms of sexuality. What's that all about? Why aren't people, why is anyone investigating that or writing about it? I think it's fascinating. Do you think it has more to do with the 
more permissiveness of the time or the more to- the slightly more tolerant times in terms of sexuality, um, marriage equality and so forth? Well, every, you know, I mean, there was no trans people in the 70s, you know, I mean, there were no there was no fluidity. There was no gender fluidity. Well, it was hidden. Yeah, it was totally hidden. As a matter of fact, there was no language for it. And the fact that there was no language, nobody knew what was going on. There was nothing written. I knew so many people that were, quote, asexual, and they were just, you know, probably in, in, in in the wrong body. The beauty of today is that we're finally looking at Everybody who's been ignored, who's been written out, who doesn't exist. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, really, for me to see the diversity that, that, that we're accepting as normal and not as this kind of, uh, I remember the Christine Jorgensen. Do you know that name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was like the first transgendered person. Yes. Swedish, yeah. And then there was a, right after that, there was sort of one, but there were these oddities. They weren't part of the world now. The language didn't exist, and that's what was heard. The language didn't exist for women to to work with uh, sexual imagery either. It just didn't exist. We were unladylike if we even knew about it or something. I don't. You know, I don't really. I'm not an intellectual, obviously, but I just felt the disparity and 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 how all this was very wrong. Somehow, women should be able to make images for their own pleasure, basically, or to look at images for their own pleasure. Or even even just their own intellectual curiosity. Exactly. I mean, that's part of why I like Maplethorpe's images so much. I just like to sort of have that view into a different world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that well, he was a very powerful artist, uh, and uh, you know, I don't think he was ever saying, "I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm going to." Uh, I think he just made the. Im- uh, oh, my dog's about to jump on. Okay, I have to do this. Get off! Come on, because he's he's going. I got this big. Uh, sorry. Let's let me see. Get him. off. Oh, oh okay. Here <laughs> you are, to, little stinker. Oh, look at the little monkey. Do you see him? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. okay. He got off. Yeah, okay. he was going to jump in my lap. I could see it coming. <laughs> <laughs> Marilyn, you've said that when a work of art upsets you, it's probably good. Why is that? I well, it's so rare. <laughs> it got my attention, you know. Most artists make art that looks like art. And when you see something that's that's another language, it's a, a, a fresh vision. And I don't actually, as an artist, I love looking at all the artists that made art before me. I see the threads of my work filled with, with their work. But when it's a you know a brand new artist with a whole new idea, it's like threatening somehow too. But I've I've learned to embrace it. You know I want to run away from it because it's you know oh you're going to take up that idea of oh taking up space that I could have, and I know that that's absolutely the worst attitude you could possibly have with new art. I really want to grow and change, and I don't think that happens without difficult conversations, and difficult conversations meaning embracing what looks strange to me or you know it's going to disrupt my art world so to speak and it's going to leave me behind somehow but i you know i look i work through all of that and i look at all of that and i think okay the best thing i can do is go embrace that artist and tell him how great he or she is 
And then the envy disappears. Ah. The minute you tell somebody how good they are, see, I get rid of the poison that way. Oh, that's so interesting. So are you an envious person? Um, I'm a... I'm an artist. <laughs> We're known as being, you know, soul-suckingly self-involved. Oh, I think everybody is. I think all people are to some degree or another. I have found that the best way for me to get over my envy, my my considerable envy, is to just go and make something because it, then, then I can just focus it outward. I have to get rid of the envy before I before I feel I can, I want to get rid of it at all costs. You know, the resentment of really good other artists. I have a whole coterie of very, very good artists that are my good friends because I want that poison gone. I tell them right away how good they are. And it literally drains, it drains away. And I, and they make me better artists. If they're really good, then I say, okay, I got to, I got to get as good as this, or I got to top this. That's where I can use envy as a healthy thing. But I, you know, it's the death of, uh, of creativity for me. You've described the time working with Christoph as druggies living in the East Village. And you went on to state that once you started doing drugs, you just fucked up and were in a 10-year coma. If you look at my retrospective, there's this big blank. <laughs> um, but what, so what made you decide to go to rehab? How did, how did you make that sort of path-defining change? Oh, you know... Um, well, it's not like addiction was a big surprise to my gene of makeup. I mean, there's pretty much everybody in my, if I fit with my last name has had some kind of an, there might be an exception, but I haven't found it. So I knew all about, I knew about on the wagon, for instance, by the time I was prescient, you know, I knew what that meant. I thought a coffee table was a cocktail table. I didn't know it was ever a coffee table. You know, that table in front of the couch? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so everyone's been trying to stop in my family or trying to moderate or, you know. And, and in 1985, it was really the beginning, or actually, actually it might have been the apex of the crack epidemic. And it was just, I think people could drink themselves to death. They could go till they're 60, 70, you know, it's just be drunks, you know. But once you get drugs in there, people start crashing, you know, really fast. And I, I was one of those people. And I really um, couldn't get high anymore. How did getting sober affect the subject of your work? Well, <sighs> I had to, I, see, I, was, I was known as being this collaborative artist. So I had to make something. That's when I went to enamel paint. Uh, I've been using enamel paint ever since then. I couldn't work with oil. I couldn't make anything that looked like our collaborations, which were pretty good. But uh, uh, I, and it opened me up a lot to like. He taught me a lot. And uh, when 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 it broke up, I had to start making something that didn't look like anything we'd ever made before. I sort of had to listen to my own voice, and I sort of got. I was you know there was thirty layers of cotton batting around my head. Until I, I, you know, the cobwebs, you know, it took years. To, I, I didn't know what being, I didn't know what 10 o'clock in the morning looked like not being high. And so the, I had to learn how to be in the world again. And once, you know, I did that, I could get in touch more, more with my inner voice. And I just started making the work that you know me, you know my work from. Now, we talked about slightly why I started showing the photos of my mother. That's when I started getting taken seriously. Because once I got thrown out of the art world, the art world is a kind of, it is a bunch of cliches. And, you know, kittens are adorable and 
sunsets are beautiful and cliches are cliches for a reason. I showed the pictures of my mother and all of a sudden I was taken seriously because, oh, she comes from dysfunction, so she must be a good artist. That oh, kind of thing happened. Wow. And that's sort of, that's when I was let back in. <laughs> and that was also serendipitous. It was not anything planned. Well, it sounds like it was something that happened after a lot of hard work that was maybe a bit more than serendipitous. It was a combination of... Well, the work was there. And yeah. The, you know, I really feel like this is how I feel about the creative process, that if you listen to your inner vision, you listen to your own voice, you make art from that place, sooner or later the um, zeitgeist hits you. It'll catch up. Or not. Some people have to die first, but yeah, the zeitgeist sooner or later will catch up with them. It's fair in the end, perhaps, but it's, you know, there's so many great artists who died, you know, nobody even knew who they were. And I, I feel like I'm one of the lucky ones. It hit me when I was alive. You stated that fashion is one of the engines of our culture and that we see who our tribe is by the way we present ourselves. Even if you're someone who doesn't care what they look like or you don't put yourself together, that's a tribe. And you've tried to make a metaphor for that by containing two different ideas in the same image, which is why you've made things that you would describe as sort of disgusting, but absolutely ravishingly beautiful. And Marilyn, I'm wondering how you balance the disgusting and the beautiful. Well, I actually never see it as disgusting. <laughs> but I've been, you know, I'm not disenchanted. It's disingenuous to me to say that I know other people do. Right. And, and and you've mentioned it as other people thinking that, not that you think yeah. that. Or And I'm not saying I think that either. I actually own several pieces of your work and feature them oh, very do. prominently in my home. I love your work. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't know that. Well, um, fashion to me is the same as pornography. It's this kind of giant engine of the culture that everyone has a tip for. And, uh, you know, I've been to people's houses where they hide their Vogue magazines and bring out their October, you know, when they have dinner parties. It's so easy to kick fashion, you know, to the curb. Uh, it's shallow and it's uh, it's fleeting and uh, uh, and it creates body dysmorphia. But it's also, you know, one of the a billion jillion dollar industry where that's where women have real power you know, one of the few places. And at the same time, it, you know, you know, you're never going to look that good, but it still gives you a lot of pleasure. So I wanted all of those things to be in all those images that I make, this kind of uh, nuance, because nothing's black and white, absolutely nothing. And uh, that's what the internet has proven. There's no right way to be anything, you know. And uh, it will, I mean, there's some, some people die over trying to prove the right way you know they make they make rules and they try and uh uh order their world and trying to make things the way they think it should be or the way god wants it to be and i just find that the opposite of the creative process and so whenever i see somebody that hates something so much or it's so dismissed by everyone i sort of I'm, I'm drawn to see what it's all about. Pornography, there would be no internet without pornography. You do know that. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, for a long time, it was the number one commercial enterprise on the internet. It, it fueled the internet. <laughs> I think online dating is now, Marilyn, which I find so interesting. Oh, really? 
Yeah, that's so interesting. That's interesting. I didn't know that because I thought it was the most, one of the most powerful. I mean, the fact that we're constantly trying to, not we, but certain elements of our culture always trying to tell you what to do. That there's only one right way to do anything. And I just find there's exceptions to every rule. And that's what I feel about the images that I make. I'm not going to tell you what to think, you know. You have to bring your own history and your own traditions and, you know, your own experiences. And, and then we maybe we can have a dialogue. But, who, you know, if you tell somebody what to think, it's an illustration. I don't scold anybody. And that's how I get, I get um, criticized for that. And I sort of feel like it's my badge of, uh, I, that's where I'm exceptional. You know, I don't judge. I like the idea that I can listen to all, all these different voices and they're not, you know, without judgments. I think that's one of the things sobriety has given me. It, what do you mean? How so? Well, you know, everybody's story is, uh, is so powerful. And people do terrible things. And I can't throw any stones. I did terrible things. Everybody does terrible things. Yeah, exactly. And um, if you don't judge other people, you really don't judge yourself anymore either. Oh, I hope that's true. I hope to get to that place. I, think, I know it is. I know it is. <laughs> I've seen it in my own life. You know, I used to think I was, you know, the worst person that ever lived. And I'm, you know, that's pretty narcissistic of me. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even close. <laughs> Especially now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Marilyn, you, you mentioned earlier that you want women to have images of themselves for their own pleasure and amusement. And do you think that there's a difference between the male gaze and the female gaze when looking at your work? It would be nice to find out. <laughs> Don't you think? We'd like to see a body of work and maybe see what the difference is. I really would love that, but we don't have it. You know, I'm trying to my best to support all the women that try, but uh, it's just so easy to kick sexual imagery to the curb. And I just don't, I think we could find places for it that are healthy. You said that women should own the production of sexual imagery. Exactly. And I find that so fascinating. Cindy Gallup feels the same way. Uh, the Crash Pad series, the the, the mm -hmm. uh, pornography that they're producing, I think also very much believes that. Um, how do you think that that is possible? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, there are pockets of people that are doing things like that, but it's very, very unusual. You know, when, when I was first working this work, there were very few sex workers, you know, that were considered themselves sex workers and that were intellectualizing it. And I really, uh, and there were so many more porn stars that were being exploited or were porn addicts, but anyone who, who owned the production, the first one I saw was really Pamela Anderson. You know, she said, I'm not a dancer. I'm not a singer. I'm not an actress. I'm a pinup. And she made, you know, she, she did very well and she owned it. And I thought, you know, this is, I was always attracted to that, just like I was attracted to Brenda Starr. I was attracted to uh, Candida Royale, the first woman director who made uh, softcore porn for other, for, for couples. And, you know, and I, Susie Bright, who made her, the first lesbian porn magazine. Those are the people that were, um, were, were my support system, actually. And uh, I feel like nowadays, you know, they're, we're, they're, we were pretty tame. 
because of digital technology, women can do anything they want now. It's pretty simple. And so I'd love to see a whole body of work dissected by about male gaze and female gaze. I don't think we have any, hardly, we have little touchstones, that's it, nothing, no body of work. We've got, you know, hundreds of years of uh, of uh, softcore porn just in uh, in paintings, you know, the bather always being surprised by Apollo, Daphne being surprised by Apollo. From the beginning, from the beginning of art history, female women's bodies were you know, objectified in some way. No pubic hair, of course. No armpit hair. And, there, and of course, the male body's been sexualized too, but not to the, the degree that women have been. So I just thought it would be, you know, really interesting to see women making images of, of a bather. And that's what I'm doing now, women in a bathing, uh, 21st century bathers. And I'd like to see more things like that or taking that same trope from art history and seeing what it looks like in a woman's hands. And we're seeing it in movies all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, even the number of female action heroes now, Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel, I mean, that's really magnificent. Um, I cried during Wonder Woman. Did you really? Well, I cried (laughs) at the end of Avengers uh, Endgame for (laughs) so many reasons. Um, But yeah, I mean, we could have a whole conversation about how (laughs) Scarlett Johansson's death was just so wrong in so many ways. Yeah. Um, yes. So I thought I, you probably know this given your your art history knowledge, but I was in Italy over the summer and saw um, David, the statue. Right. And I learned that back then the artists were sculpting the uh, male uh, organs, the penises, smaller than they actually were um, because otherwise they looked um, vulgar. Too sexual. Yeah. Too yeah. vulgar. Because I've always wondered why David's penis was so much smaller than his hands or feet would indicate. Yeah, there was a kind of fear of sexuality even back then. Religion, it's always religion, you know. Religion has always been about about policing bodies. Yeah. I I don't know if you know this, um, Roxanne and I were looking at the uh, website where small businesses could apply for uh, the tax-free loans because of the pandemic. Right. And there's a caveat for uh, the applications. If you run a business of a sexual nature or what they use, they use the word purient work, they will not give you a loan. That doesn't surprise me at all. No, it doesn't surprise me at all, but it's just one of those shaking my head moments. This administration is just the pits. Yeah, I can't think of one single positive thing about it. Um, You mentioned Pamela Anderson, and that that reminded me that I had a question for you. The work that you've done in the last decade includes a series of portraits with Pamela Anderson, uh, Lady Gaga, Miley Cyrus, and in all of them, you ask them to cut their hair into bangs. That's true. How come? Um, Well, I didn't have to do it at all with... uh, uh, Miley, she had bangs, but um, I think with Pam, she was forty, and I wanted to make her look so innocent because she is such a really hardcore animal rights activist, and I am too. I mean, I'm not even close to her, but I'm a vegetarian basically. But uh, and I don't, you know, I try and I wouldn't wear fur, but I'm still a hypocrite. I wear leather shoes and. 
you know, I have, but I, I thought it was so interesting that she took that cause on always while she was a pinup. And I wanted to show that empathy because she's so empathetic with animals. And I sort of um, thought if I cut her bangs and took all her makeup off, she really does. I mean, she's one of those, all of these people that you mentioned kind of glow in the dark, you know, these kinds of, you know, they're born to look like that. And, uh, you know, you just want to watch them. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they shimmer. They really do shimmer. Yeah, they really, you know that, yeah. And so I just wanted to create that kind of innocence that... And, you know, identifies with the suffer, with animal cruelty and suffering. And so that's why I cut her bangs. And with Gaga, uh, it was right before The Star is Born. Uh, the movie came out and I, she had no makeup on. And I just wanted to, I don't know, same kind of thing. She was like reinventing herself. And I was working with her at a moment when she wasn't, paying attention. She didn't think I could see her and she let her guard down. And that's the picture I use for the New York Times. Those pictures are stunning. Oh, thank you. She has never looked more beautiful in those pictures. Well, you know, you can't, it's just real beauty. You can't really, you know, because they're, they're, I'm behind glass and there's a lot of steam on it, but I can see right through it, but they don't know that. So I could just change my the lens, you know, so that's how I got that. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I could trick people that way because <laughs> they, they don't think they're, they're looking at them. They, you know, because they can't see you. So I just gave away my secret. <laughs> <laughs> Is there? A, do you approach commercial work versus um, non-commercial work in in any sort of different manner? Well, I turn down every, almost every commercial job because I'm not going to learn anything from it. But whenever I'm going to learn anything, like I, like I learn all, I learn all kinds of photography uh, techniques because I work with commercial photographers and commercial lighting directors and new, you know, I learn about lenses, I learn about makeup. I don't know anything about any of that fashion, and you know, I would only do, I only do close-ups anyway. I've never shot a whole person, so nothing scares me in terms of technology. Even though you know I'm an old lady, but I've never been afraid of it. So I just dive into anything that may, might make my work better. What, what did you learn during the shoot with Gaga? With Gaga? Okay. Well, you know what I learned really? That I could set up my studio in another city. I could do everything I needed to do. I, I You know, I could... And I, every, I've always shot everything in New York City at, at the studios here, and I didn't know if I could replicate it. And I saw I could replicate everything. Did you shoot her in L.A.? Yeah, I shot her in L.A. And then I've got to shoot somebody else pretty soon. We were all, that was just, you know, I'm making these portraits of people, these paintings of icons. And, I, and, I, and I'm not afraid of going there now and creating the kind of, I, you know, I think I can recreate. Because uh, I have a, very specific things that I do, and my studio is just geared to it. And so I found out that I could I could be portable. And that was a big learning curve. We've talked a little bit about your fascination with Playboy magazine. I also actually was really fascinated by it as a kid. My father uh, stashed some Playboy right. magazines in one of the second bedrooms, and I found them and loved reading them and looking at them. Um, God, I learned so much from them. Oh, so did I. Because I didn't have, I didn't have any other outlets, you know, to read about. I mean, it was just such a, a conservative area, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, you know, and then Evergreen, Playboy, those were 
Yeah, and the new Playboy, it just breaks my heart that they're not, the pandemic has closed it down because it's all run by women. Yeah. One of their latest uh, centerfolds is transgender. <laughs> A real oh, beauty. Wow. Yeah, I have you know, to go look at that. So, I didn't see that. They're so interesting now. I'm surprised Roxanne wasn't approached to do an article. Oh, I think they featured her. They featured her recently in oh, the magazine. They featured um, and, and yeah, she has a relationship with Playboy. So yeah, I, I think they should do a centerfold of her. Oh God, That'd that would be gorgeous. amazing. You, so, so regarding Playboy and, and our mutual fascination, but certainly your professional fascination with hair, talk about Bush, <laughs> your collaboration with them. Oh, right, right. I teach. So I, I teach at the same place you do, actually. School of Visual I'm Arts. I'm across the street. Yeah. And, um, and I knew students who were lasering all their hair you know? And I thought, oh, Jesus, you know, I remember plucking all my eyebrows up. They didn't grow back. And I thought, well, why don't you, you know, it's not so terrible pubic hair. Why don't you, uh, I, you know, I know what it looks like. I remember. And um, I thought, well, let me show you pictures of it. So um, Playboy commissioned me to shoot. My idea was to have different, all races and all colors of, uh, of pubic hair. And so I had, you know, models growing out their pubic hair. It took about eight months. And Playboy paid for each one of these shoots. And then I gave them a whole bunch of images and they were appalled. <laughs> Why? I mean, I've seen them because them. they've been published elsewhere, but they're beautiful. Well, they they were published in the new Playboy, the one that the, these young smarty pants girls just took over. And then I, because of that, I started like making paintings from it. And I thought... You know, really, I'm, I want to make pubic hair so beautiful that you can put it in your living room. And once in a while, it happens because I, I, you know, it's pretty uh, abstract by the time I get to it. So by the time I finish a painting, so I've been working with pubic hair for years now. And yes, most people won't buy them, but I will have them. And sooner or later, I'm going to make a whole show of it. Why do you think that pubic hair has been so erased in art history and in current culture? It's really astonishing. It's amazing. I have a beautiful Van Gogh uh, reproduction where there was pubic hair and uh, armpit hair. And it's so rare. I just, you know, there's Courbet and there's a couple, the Manet, of course, the famous origin of of the world. But it was, you know, considered really pornographic. You know, I probably drawings were passed around back in the in the 19th century, 18th century. There was probably too vulgar, just like the tiny penises and ball sacks, right. you know, on David. They somehow considered it too base, you know. And um, there was that very famous story of uh, Ruskin, Bernard Ruskin, thinking his wife, he'd never seen a naked woman, and he'd only seen art history, and he thought his wife was misformed. (laughs) He ran out of the room because she had pubic hair. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Yes. I don't know if it's true, but it's definitely all over art history. Marilyn, you've written about how you always get stressed before you start a new project and totally feel like you're going to fail, but go on to question who doesn't have self-doubt. And so I want to ask you, do you know anybody who thinks everything that they do is great? I do know people that work from arrogance, but every, all, all the, every good artist has self-doubt. I don't know. I don't really sit around and talk with the artists that are making the the most money and the, having the most acclaim. I do actually. That's not true. But I know the ones I do know have self-doubt. 
I think it's part of the creative process. And you just act as if, you know, pretend that you know what you're doing. <laughs> then hopefully something interesting comes out of it. Yeah, so actually I do know people. I was thinking of the ones the market thinks are the most, which are usually male, white male. And I'm, But all the good artists I've ever met, really good ones aren't arrogant. They're pretty nice people. I find that the people that are really the most comfortable insecure but but and the most comfortable acknowledging that tend to be the most interesting to me well i just think failure is part of the creative process and i also think that self-doubt is and uh, you have to just act as if and do it anyway face your fears you know and and make the work the last thing i want to talk to you about is your political activism um, you've been doing a lot of activist work now, thank you, uh, with organizations like Swing Left, Downtown for Democracy, Halt Action Group, Planned Parenthood. And regarding the desire to do this work, you've stated the following, and I, I really love this quote. Um, you've said that pleasure is transitory and that you have to find pleasure in being of service or doing activism or helping other individuals that lasts longer than great sex. Because even when you have all the things you thought would satisfy you. They never do. No, they never do. Why is that? Why is that? Why is that that they, they never satisfy? I mean, I think that's a, a fairly universal sentiment that, that that it's sort of this hedonistic treadmill we're on. Well, this has been my experience. You get true, real joy out of uh, helping someone, helping others and fighting injustice. And I think it's, if I didn't do it, I'd be going crazy right now. So it makes me feel, you know, I can make my work, I can compartmentalize somewhat, I can make my art, but, uh, but I, you know, I, if I wasn't an activist, I mean, if you're not upset right now, you're asleep. <laughs> how are you feeling about our future? Talk about, talk about how you feel about what might come ahead of us. I, you know, this, I've been asked this so many times re lately, and I think we're in the middle of it. I mean, we're not even in the middle. We're not, if, if we only have like 3,000 deaths and we're expecting 100 to 200,000 deaths in the next month or so, I don't, I don't think there's any way, shape or form we're going to come out of this being the same culture we knew going into it. And hopefully the best case scenario is to, for me anyway, is that we get rid of, you know, that we start to work in terms of climate change and uh, and work as, as a global, you know, especially for pandemics, work together and, and come together as a, as a nation that wants to stay healthy uh, with clean air and oceans and mitigate the, the, the cruelty that's in the world now. But I, that's never happened. So I don't know why it would this time. I don't know what's going to happen. I know that you are... Um living with your husband and are still working. How are you managing your work through this experience? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. I, we have a house we built upstate so I could walk around, you know, here. And I'm, I am immune compromised uh, on a, a, a little bit. And my husband is definitely too. So we, we're really careful, but I can work remotely all the time. I gave, you know, my studio might have to go tight. We're going to definitely have to tighten our belt, but I've been working with the same team for years and one person for over 20 years. And we, you know, we're just making art anyway, and um, I'm making it every day. And just, uh, so what, I'm, you know, I'll pile, I'll pile it up in a corner, but 
I'm trying to keep everybody that works for me. I have all freelancers and they go in and out, but keep them employed so they have money. And also, if we can still make art, if I can still make art, that's one my run relief all day long. That's where I get my, you know, I get true pleasure. I walk through the news and I get so distracted. I thought I'd get so much more done, you know, being isolated. Because I don't know an artist who doesn't love being isolated and just making their work. <laughs> you know, that's like, we're in heaven. That's, uh, you know, but then you, the news comes in and then you get so distracted. Yeah, I think it's really hard to expect that we're all going to be super productive during a global pandemic. No, it's too, it's too hard. But if I can do a couple hours every day or then I'm, you know, that's all I need to do. And the rest is, you know, to try and keep my team alive, you know, because those are the people I feel responsible for. I don't see people buying art when this is over, at least not, that's not going to be a priority. Has your work changed at all in this period? Of course. Yeah. I'm making some really nasty things. I can't help it. <laughs> can you talk about my, any, can you talk about what, what kind of nasty things you're making? Well, I don't think they're that nasty, but they're, what they are is uh, how I'm feeling. And it's really, you know, I'm out of breath on, you know, and uh, uh, metaphorically. It's devastating when you think about what's going to happen in the next month. Yes. Uh, but I, but I, like, I'm not an illustrator. I'm just trying to make metaphorical images that, that, that mirror what I'm feeling. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. I, don't, I have no idea, but I'm still making them. And I can work remotely on, you know, I work with two other people on Photoshop all day long and we just like change everything. And then, you know, I can't print anything because I don't have a printer up here. But I go down to the city and I get paper out of the studio and I take it to, because I can drive and just drop it off. In my research for the show, I learned something that I thought was really helpful given the time that we're living in. And I learned from you that sunlight is a disinfectant. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I think I think uh, distortion happens when from secrets. Yeah. Look at what happens to trans people, people born in the wrong body. Secrets will distort you, you know. If you talk about it, you can find health and and love, self-love instead of feeling like the monster from hell, you know, or whatever the monstrous, you know, fantasies happen when you feel like you don't you're just, you know, I mean, shame is just terrible. Guilt is, you can work with. Guilt, you can change your, your, your actions. Shame is, you, just you being alive is a terrible thing. I think it's the most destructive emotion we can experience. Exactly. Exactly. Shame is the worst. And that's why I'm talking about suspending judgment. Well, you know, up to the point, you know, I mean, that, I mean, we have a, we have a, an administration that's, it's like out of a Marvel comics for cruelty. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's kill the elephants now. <laughs> It'll take decades to undo the damage that's been done in the last four years. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? Well, that's why we need people like you more than ever, Marilyn. You're helping to wake up the world. Oh, I don't know if that's true, but I, do, I, I don't, I, you know, I do it, I do it really because that's how I can go to sleep at night. Makes me feel better. Well, it, it makes many people all over the world feel better too. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is really interesting. 
Thank you for for really waking up the world with your work. And you can find out more. Thanks for all your research. (laughs) Oh, my pleasure. You can find out more about Marilyn Minter's work on her website, marilynminter.net. And she also has a really good Instagram feed. Thank you. This is the 15th anniversary of Design Matters. And I'd like to thank you for listening all these years. And remember, we can talk about making a difference. We can make a difference or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.